Good evening. Um, our timeline brings us from Joshua and the conquest of the Promised Land, the end of our Sinai period, to the beginning of the period of the kings. Last week we learned that under Joshua, much of the Promised Land had been conquered and settled by the 12 tribes. The conquest was not complete, however, because all the foreign nations were not driven out as God had commanded. I'm sure we all know by now, this is the problem. The foreign nations bring their foreign gods, and as we see, these idols continue to seduce God's people. Last week, Tammy asked a great question. Why do you think these ancient people are so attracted to idols? But we as a group came to the conclusion that idolatry is no less a problem now than it was then. Why is that? Well, think about this. We were made to worship. And we're going to worship something. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. God is most glorified in us when we are most glorified in him. When the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah, he's talking to his people about the time they will be restored after the exile. Here's what he says. I will bring my sons and daughters back to Israel from the distant corners of the earth. All who claim me as their God will come, for I have made them for my glory. That's why we're made. Idolatry exists because the fall perverted all relationships, including our relationship with God. The perversion here is, rather than worshiping the creator, we worship created idols. And we will continue to see this problem throughout our story. But for now, at least, the promised land is settled. Prior to Joshua's death, he urges the Israelites to serve the Lord, and they agree to do so. In Judges 2.7, we read, and the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. The generation that Moses addressed in Deuteronomy remained faithful. But three short Bible verses later, it doesn't take long for the people to turn to the foreign idols. Would somebody please read Judges 2, 10 through 12? Thank you, Jeff. And when we continue, here's, look at the action words. They chased after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. They angered the Lord. Second time, he says, they abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. Ashtoreth was the goddess. During this period, the Israelites are ruled by judges who hold civil and military authority. Now, because our study is concerned with the grand redemption story, 
this period is pretty much summarized in our reading. But fortunately, like we said last week, here at New City, we just had a great study on the book of Judges. But I want to review some key revelations from this period. Will somebody please read Judges 17.6? In those days, Israel had no king, so the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Thank you, Carrie. Would somebody please read Judges 18.1? Now in those days, Israel had no king. Thank you, Jeff. Would somebody please read Judges 19.1? had no king. <laughs> and how about 2125? Yes, sir. In those days, Israel had no king, so the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Thank you. And what have we said repeatedly about repetition in this class? In fact, we do know Israel had a king. They didn't want to serve him. This is the concluding statement in the book of Judges. So now we move on to the book of 1 Samuel. It opens with the story of Hannah, a devout woman who was barren. She continues to cry out to the Lord in prayer and makes this vow. 1 Samuel 1.11, O Lord Almighty, if you look down upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. Well, what a vow. Well, Hannah conceives and she gives birth to a son named Samuel. Once he is weaned, she fulfills her promise by bringing Samuel to the tabernacle and giving him to Eli the priest. Eli has two sons who also are priests, and they are corrupt. At this time, the Philistines are the major enemy of Israel. And during a battle, the sons of Eli are killed. The Ark of the Covenant is captured. When the priest Eli hears this about the Ark of the Covenant, he falls back, breaks his neck, and dies. Samuel, who was a prophet, also serves as a judge. He becomes the transitional figure between the judges and the kings. Which brings us to our first discussion question, which is going to be a regular here at the academy. As you prepared your lesson for the week, what challenged you, surprised you, or impacted you as you read through the assigned scriptures? And we'll take 10 minutes. Thank you. I hope you had a great discussion. Let's talk about the central idea for tonight. God's plan of grace succeeds. All right. God's plan of grace succeeds while humans continue to fail. In 1 Samuel 8, we see that Samuel is now old and his sons are also corrupt. So Israel's elders have a little discussion with Samuel. In verse 5, they say, look, you are now old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king like all the other nations have. Samuel is unhappy, so he goes to the Lord for guidance. And here's how the Lord responds. Do as they say, he said, for it is me they are rejecting. They don't want me to be their king. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually forsaken me 
and followed other gods. Bill Arnold wrote a commentary on 1st and 2nd Samuel. I think he interprets what's going on here very well. Motivation for this request is pretty clear. Quote, we want what all the other nations have. This alarming statement reveals a profound dissatisfaction of who they are as a people. Look what God has done for them. They have been constituted as the people of God, established in the covenant at Mount Sinai, informed by Torah instruction, and led and protected by divinely ordained religious judges. Now this very identity is in doubt. They seek a status on the level of their new neighbors, the Canaanites. They have lived among them for about 200 years, and now they want to be like them. They have grown weary of being unique. Remember what we said unique was a characteristic of a state? What's it a characteristic of, to be unique? Set apart. Set apart, and that all leads to what word? Holy. holy. Thank you. Both are correct. They have grown weary of being holy. They seek conformity and security. But, as 1 Samuel 8 will make clear, they are grasping for something they fail to understand. They will lose the very things they hope to ensure by having a king. God warns the people through Samuel how a king will treat them. Watch these lists, all from the Lord. The king will draft your sons into the army, and he puts them before his chariots. So they're the first line, okay? Some of them will be commanders, while others will be slave laborers. Some will be forced to plow his fields and harvest his crops. Others will make his weapons and chariot equipment. Now, the next one really scares me. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook. <laughs> Bake. Okay. <clears throat> There were no, he will take away the best of your fields, the best of your vineyards, the best of your olive groves, and he gives them to his own servants. Now remember, God's warning the people through Samuel about all this. He will take a tenth of your harvest and distribute it among his own officers and attendants. He will want your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. Not finished yet. He'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you will become his slaves. And what is your response to all of this? No, even so, we still want a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. And don't miss this. Our human king will govern us, and our human king will lead us into battle. What has the Lord been doing all along? Right. We want to be like the other nations around us. Now, in the last two weeks, we have talked about Deuteronomy 4, and it does bear repeating. When Moses was preparing the younger generation to enter the promised land, Moses describes what Israel's role was to be to the nations, right? If you obey the laws carefully, you will display your wisdom and intelligence to the surrounding nations. When they hear about these laws, they will exclaim, what other nation is as wise and prudent as this? For what great nation has a God as near to them as our Lord, our God, is near us whenever we call on him? Israel was to be a light to the nations. 
The generation of Samuel's day completely reject this. Rather than draw other nations to Yahweh, they are drawn to Baal, Ashtoreth, and the Canaanites. They prefer to be like the other nations. So here we go. We're going to talk about Saul, king number one. Saul is from a wealthy family from the tribe of Benjamin. He is tall, handsome, and a military man. When Samuel anoints Saul, the people accept him. They shout, long live the king. He's successful in the beginning in his military campaigns. But by 1 Samuel 11, we read about a victory which becomes the pinnacle of his entire kingship. After this victory, early on, everything spirals downward from this point because Saul has a problem. <coughs> Saul has a problem with obedience. So let's talk about obedience. This is all coming from 1 Samuel 15, and it's really going to show us who Saul is. One day Samuel said to Saul, I anointed you king of Israel because the Lord told me to. Now listen to this message from the Lord. The Lord said, I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek. They opposed the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Now go and completely destroy everyone. Adults, children, cattle, everything. Then Saul slanders the Amalekites. He captures Agog, the king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared the king's life and kept the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or a poor quality. Then the Lord says to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has again refused to obey me. This is only going to be one account. If you read 1 Samuel, there are several others. It's persistent. So when Samuel finally found Saul, Saul greets him cheerfully and says, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. Samuel's response is classic. Hmm, then what is all that bleeding of sheep and lowing of cow I happen to hear? Well, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep and cattle, he admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. Saul has been caught disobeying the Lord. The evidence is there. And Saul deflects his responsibility by blaming others, the army. Can anyone here think of another time in scripture when somebody was caught disobeying God and shifted the blame to someone else? Oh, yes. <laughs> One of our responses when caught in disobedience is deflection. And here's what Samuel says to Saul. Stop. Stop. L listen to what the Lord told me last night. Well, what is it Saul said? And Samuel told him, although you may think this little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. So much for the deflection argument. Well, the conversation continues. Poor, poor Saul, he just keeps on digging that hole. Because here we go. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed me, or why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for plunder and do exactly what the Lord said not to do? It's in scripture. 
But I did obey the Lord, he said. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back Agog, but I destroyed everyone else. Okay. Second response when we're caught in disobedience is to argue. Has that ever happened? Have you ever done that or has it happened to you? But I did destroy everyone and I captured the king. He changes God's command. Changing God's command. Can you think of a time? Does that sound familiar? Did God really say? You see, the enemy doesn't need a big bag of tricks. We keep falling for them, right? Saul continues, well, then my troops, well, they brought the best of the sheep and cattle and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now, Sam's response is a nugget of gold. It's a direct revelation, something God wants us to know about him. This is what we seek, right? Samuel replied in verse 22, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt sacrifices and offerings or your obedience to his voice? Samuel replied, well, obedience is better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering the fat of rams. Now, the next verse tells us what the Lord thinks about disobedience. He spells it out. Rebellion is as bad as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you, Saul, as king. Let's go back to verse 22. Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering the fat of rams. Two weeks ago, we looked at the sacrificial system. It was very detailed, and it accounted for the holiness of God. Timing, proximity, dress, type of animal, how the incense was burned, all mattered. Yet we are told to the Lord, obedience is more pleasing to him. This is quite a revelation. God is telling us what matters to him, and it is our obedience. Centuries later, Jesus is preparing his, his apostles for his departure. In the Gospel of John, this is covered in chapters 13 through 17. Here is part of his teaching in John 14, 23. Jesus replied, all those who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and live with them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not do what I say. And remember, my words are not my own. The message is from the Father who sent me. Now think about this. Our universal problem of death is a result of disobedience. Our solution is a result of obedience. Jesus' obedience overturns Adam's disobedience. Back to Saul. There's more. Then Saul finally admitted, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. But we find out why. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Oh, please forgive my sin now. And, and Samuel, would you go with me to worship the Lord? Well, at first, Samuel says no. Then in verse 30, when Saul pleaded again, I have sinned, but please at least honor me, Saul, before my leaders and before my people by going with me to worship the Lord your God. I'm going to worship the Lord to save my face. Saul is more concerned about his reputation among the people than his sin against God. 
Nowhere in this account do we see true repentance. So let's move on to king number two, David. We go from this account in 1 Samuel 15 directly into chapter 16, where God instructs Samuel to anoint his choice of king. It's in this chapter that we read the famous words, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now in Hebrew thought, heart had a much fuller meaning than our understanding of it. It was the center of the physical, mental, and spiritual life of all humans. It was related to thinking, and it was known as the organ of intelligence. It encompassed the will. Conscious or deliberate decisions come from the heart, such as the decision to obey God. The heart is also as we think of it. It was closely associated with our feelings and affections. After looking at Saul's kingship and his understanding of the heart in Hebrew times, can we see the heavier weight of the words, but the Lord looks at the heart. He's looking at the interior man. Saul anoints David as king, and we're told, and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David on that day, followed by, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. We're time for a discussion. How do you understand God's spirit entering and departing his people in the Old Testament? Does this conflict with your understanding of how the Holy Spirit dwells in believers today? How would you explain this? I'm going to ask you to share your answers, too. Well, it sounded like there was a lot of conversation. And I have to be honest, I can't wait to hear what you all came up with. <laughs> so would anybody like to share what they discussed about these two questions? Anyone? Any volunteers? Either the first or the second? Is, yeah, no. Jackie, we made a distinction between the Holy Spirit resting on people in the Old Testament and indwelling them in the New Testament. Oh. So that was kind of how we, we got to wrestle with these two, two questions. So. Repeat, repeat. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, we made the distinction between the Holy Spirit resting on people in the Old Testament and indwelling people in the New Testament. So that's how we kind of wrestle with these two questions uh, with um, the fact that uh, the reason that there was no real indwelling in the Old Testament was because Christ had not come and died yet and sent his Holy Spirit mm. to indwell believers. Uh, so that's, again, just basically the distinction that we were working with and how we reconciled the differences between the Old Testament movement of the Spirit and the New Testament movement of the Spirit. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well thought out. Anyone else? This is one of those wrestling questions, so any thoughts? Yes. So I, I guess I kind of wondered, you know, that whole thing about the tabernacle and for God to dwell, it had to be clean and holy. So I'm curious just about the uh, Holy Spirit coming on them, if that was God's way of sort of getting filthy, 
because he's coming on and leaving, or I don't know. It just seemed interesting that he put all these things in place for the tabernacle for him to dwell, and yet his spirit would come upon person Saul, and you know. Yes, that's a great like a point. Crazy thought. The dwelling and the holiness. Thank you. That's a great connection. Anyone else? Thank you. This is either going to be heretical or insightful. <laughs> and I'm not sure I'd know the difference. But I, Christ talks about the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And I think that describes uh, the role of the Holy Spirit to us to be a comforter. But we also see that we're gifted by the Holy Spirit, um, that we are protected um, with the whole armor of God, mm. the Holy Spirit. So all of those things as we're indwelt. I just wonder if in the Old Testament, if um, the Spirit is there to identify God is working in a special way with specific individuals for that period of time. For example, this is my anointed king. For Saul, no longer. Best I can understand it, believers today don't lose the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then even with the um, construction of the tabernacle, there's the, the, the Spirit coming upon some master craftsman mm. for that period of time for that specific thing. I mean, if they'd kept it, there might have been some more spectacular buildings around mm. other than the, the, uh, the temple. Uh, but just... Trying to parse this thing's tough because it's the same God and same God's spirit. Yes. But that doesn't mean that the spirit couldn't work in some different ways at some different times. As the Lord Jesus, when he was with us, if indeed those are true things about him having appearances in the Old Testament in some specific cases, slightly different than what he did when he was here born of a woman. Mm, thank you. Uh, I would say not heretical. I would think all, all of your answers were very insightful, well, and so are your questions. Thank you so much. Yes. There you go. Thank you so much. So let's go back to our story. Now there are two anointed kings. At first, David serves in Saul's court. But remember, the Lord is now with David. And he begins to have military success. He defeats Goliath, the Philistine giant. The people notice what's going on. And they begin to sing David's praises. Saul has killed the thousands. David has ten thousands. So what do you think is going on with Saul now? How do you think this affects him? Yes. And his jealousy leads to him wanting to kill David, who is now a fugitive. These hard years become a training ground for David. God with him, and he's with him, and he's preparing him to be a king. During this time of exile and fleeing for his life, a small group of men become loyal to David. 1 Samuel 22.1. So David leaves Gath. He escapes to a cave. He spends a lot of time in caves during these years. And soon, let's take a look at this great army. His brothers and his other relatives will join him. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble, in debt, or just discontented, until David is a captain of about 400 of these men. This is the army of a man 
who was fleeing from a king. Now, in 1 Samuel 24, our story continues. Saul is told, we know where David is. He's in the wilderness of Angedi. So Saul takes 3,000 of his elite troops, and he searches for David. Now, at this point, Saul enters a cave because, depends on your translation, right? Some Bible translations say he was covering his feet. Others are a little bit more descriptive. Saul was relieving himself. So we know scripture doesn't hold back, right? Why are we told this? It just so happens that David and his men are in that same cave, but they're further back, and Saul doesn't know it. Imagine how vulnerable Saul was to them at that very moment. And here's what they say. Now's the opportunity, David. This is what God was talking about. I will certainly put Saul under your power. Do as you wish. So David creeps forward. He cuts a piece of his cloth, of his robe, and then he realizes his conscience begins bothering him because he cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done it, he said. It's a serious thing to attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. David's men accept and obey his decision, and they don't kill Saul. So when this is done, David calls out to Saul, look what just happened. Look what I've done. How does Saul respond? He says in verse 20, and now I realize that you will surely will be the king, and Israel will flourish under your lordship. Now swear to me by the Lord that when this happens, you will not kill me or my family or none of my descendants. And David says, I promise that I will not do that. And Saul went home, but just for a while. Even after this, Saul does not end his pursuit of David. It's not until Saul is dead that David's life as a fugitive ends. So it's time for another discussion question, and this one's from our homework. It's the second question in our homework. And to really realize that the time between his anointing in 1 Samuel 16 and David becoming king in 2 Samuel 5 was not months, it was years. Years of being in the cave, years of fleeing for his life. The intervening years were difficult, but God used this time as a training ground. David's character, leadership abilities, and his intimate relationship with God were being formed. So the question from the homework is, what does this reveal about how God works? But I have another question. If you were willing, would you share a story of your own time when you went through a difficult period and share what God accomplished in your life? 10 minutes. <laughs>